This might be my favorite podcast ever. Yeah. That was Dr. Catherine Counts, a.k.a. Counts. The subject today is data, my favorite four-letter word. I'm Rob Lawrence, and this is EMS One Stop. to One Stop Extra. On today's podcast, I will deliver a full narration of my article that originally appeared online at ems1.com or many other social media platforms. Additionally, I will welcome a speaker or guest, or in today's case, two speakers or guests, uh, to have a quick chat and see if we can pull up some more takeaways on this week's subject. So today, I would like to introduce people that actually don't need any introduction, uh, but I'm going to give them one anyway. First of all, Mike Tegman, an improvement guide at First Watch. He helps turn data into actionable information. Uh, he helps build teams and their resilience using First Watch's neuroscience-based resilient first system. He teaches stress management techniques that can be used by anyone, anywhere. He's the author of Supercharge Your Stress Management in the Age of COVID-19. He facilitated the development of EMS Agenda, the EMS Agenda 2050. He's a popular, and I can vouch for this, conference speaker and author of more than 600 articles in professional journals and associate professor in the graduate program in emergency health services management at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, and an associate adjunct professor in the master's program in healthcare administration and interprofessional leadership at the University of California, San Francisco. Wow. Equally powerful guest coming up is Catherine R. Counts, PhD, MHA. Uh, Counts is the acting instructor of the Department of Emergency uh, Medicine at the University of Washington and the Research and Quality Improvement Manager at Seattle Fire Medic One. Her research interests are in quality improvement and patient safety and out-of-hospital cardiac arrest care and advanced airway management in the pre-hospital setting. She specialises in the mechanisms by which providers are changing the way healthcare is delivered in the pre-hospital setting. That is an amazing uh, resume and bio for my two guests, and I'd like to welcome you both because they say, always surround yourself with smart people in life, and I certainly have done that today. How are you guys? Great. Thanks for having us. Great. The more uh, conversations I can have with Mike Tagman, the better. I've worked out that I've actually worked out that if you take selfies, you know the 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 the, the, the screenshot from the Zoom is the new selfie, right? And so when you take a selfie screenshot, the, it's it's cool fact it improves when you have Tagman in his amazingly big uh, armchair there uh, showing. So. I'm going to make sure I do that going forward because, Mike, you improve the cool factor, let me tell you. But the reason we're here is to talk about uh, the article and talk about uh, data, which is my favourite four-letter word. But let's just stop for a second and listen to that narration. When I started speaking on the US national circuit a decade ago, I delivered a standard presentation called data, my favourite four-letter word. 
The aim of the lecture then was to convince listeners and agencies that they really did have enough data and information to collect, collate, process and trend into actionable intelligence to support solid decision-making. In my own organisation, I banned anecdotal evidence and retired the phrase, well, we always did it this way. I replaced it with, if we do what we always did, we will get what we always got. I also forbade the use of the word multiple when describing a quantity of whatever it happened to be with a good-natured rebuttal, multiple is a word, not a number. How many of X were there? That was then. I'm delighted to see that we are now data savvy and using data to inform decisions and actions in EMS. My equal affection for all things public health has been driven by the fact that if we can present a picture of the looming emergency through data, then we can prepare and present steps to, if not stop it, at least prepare for it. One key data mining success at the Richmond Ambulance Authority included becoming a local expert in the Central Virginia Alfresco opioid retail industry by plotting overdoses and tracking naloxone administration by dosage to provide a gross indicator of spread and severity of locally distributed mixture. With the assistance of our syndromic surveillance vendor, we created triggers to alert us to controlled drug usage, frequent or repeat users, geo-cluster reporting and heroin overdoses. We also looked at those patients who had been administered naloxone more than once and, with the assistance of the medical examiner, compared opioid deaths against our own cohort of patients to identify trends and learning. In fact, we had so much data that we created a public health MPH student internship for undergraduates to research our issues each season. One of the hypotheses explored our city's Latino community and its reluctance to call 911 in an emergency, as 911 in their book equated to ICE. This research led to superb levels of liaison with the local Latino community, greater understanding on both sides of the community, and creation of and participation in Spanish language police and EMS citizen academies. This is something I recommend to all agencies, as this is live training, and the possibility of peer-reviewed publications or poster presentations for the students, and fantastic results for the organisation. One of my favourite, publicly available and free data products now is the National EMS Information System Technical Assistance Centre, NEMSIS TAC, EMS by the Numbers Weekly Charts. EMS by the Numbers offers a weekly look at specific categories of EMS activations occurring during the COVID-19 pandemic. The charts, updated weekly, provide information regarding temporal variations in the type and characteristics of EMS activations occurring across the nation. The data and trends contained in the charts certainly help us understand the effects of COVID-19 as seen through the eyes of the EMS responder. The most recent question looks at the rate of influenza-like illness after the Labour Day holiday. Concerns were raised that unsocially distanced gatherings and relaxed regulations of the last holiday would cause a reignition of COVID-19 on a national scale. While we're waiting for a few more weeks' worth of data to declare a true trend, activity has certainly moved away from its previous downward trajectory. In addition to influenza-like illness, EMS by the numbers also includes trends in EMS response to cardiac arrest, scene death, injury, vehicle crashes and opioid-related activations using the national EMS data set of over 40 million records collected and displayed over a one-year chart.
They answer some of the key questions we've asked this year, such as, did our EMS volume drop off? Are we seeing less cardiac arrest calls and more DOAs? What about opioids and naloxone administration? Hopefully this article also addresses the question, what happens when I upload my EPCR? Well, your data joins a huge pot that can begin to answer questions on a national scale. I found this data set useful for briefings and discussions, and I recommend them to anyone that needs to educate anyone, from new hires to elected officials. Data or raw information is just the beginning. An assembly of numbers or facts in an act of feeding the beast is not the end game. We must always take what we have, collate it, assess it, and act on it. This is what others call the intelligence cycle, or the science of generating signals from noise. We must make sure that we take action either to correct, learn from or develop new treatments and plans to improve our levels of service and patient outcomes. So yes, data is my favourite four-letter word, but as with many things, it's not how much of it you have, but what you do with it that counts, and please do something with it. So that was my take, and of course, I'd love to hear yours in the comments section at the main column at ems1.com. But guys, let's talk about data the question I posed in the article, but let's go back and get some real reaction from you guys, is some people still say, I don't have enough information in my EMS system to make a decision. Counts, what do you say to that? I think they're hiding in their own insecurities. <laughs> so every EMS system has produces plenty of raw data. And then it just takes kind of, you have to put the energy in to create information. And so if you want to try to blame the data, you're you're shifting blame somewhere where it doesn't belong. So a workman and his tools, then, in which case. Um, Definitely. Mike, you've been in the data game for a long, long time, and we won't probably highlight when you started, but uh, how have you seen the evolution of informa- turning information into actionable intelligence going? And are we going fast enough, I guess? Um, you know, I, I'm seeing different people doing extraordinary things with data every day as we, uh, uh, counts and I teach classes together and we've got students doing really cool projects and, uh, and turning things into run charts and control charts and analyzing things. And, and there's a handful of people who are leaders in the EMS world who've kind of uh, gotten the religion and they, they just crank things out, answer questions. And whenever they're kind of curious about something, they immediately go to the data and, and produce charts. And, and rather than kind of going off a notion that uh, other people may be inspired to do from Facebook or whatever, they'll go get the real answers from the real data in their own organization before they choose to take action. It's pretty inspiring. And I'm glad you, you referenced Facebook there. And, of course, one of the, the main uh, MD issues at the moment is people are usurping their seven years of medical school with two seconds of Google search. So I'm delighted that we are going to the information. Going forward, though, we have to do a better job at getting joined up across the whole spectrum of both pre-hospital and hospital. And so what do you think are some of the barriers to actually getting a, a, a soup-to-nuts data set going? How are we going to overcome that? So I think this is a really interesting problem that uh, the states has that other countries don't suffer from as much just because we have such kind of siloed healthcare across health insurers and there's no one entity that owns the patient from start to finish. So that's one problem. Um, I think the other issue is 
technical in nature. How do you connect? Because we don't have kind of a unified healthcare system. There's no one identifying number. We don't have a master healthcare record number. So you have to connect the 911 call to the patient, to the hospital record, to the death certificate, and that requires energy um, and time is money, right? And I think the third problem is uh, culture. There's this idea of data is power and people are scared to share data because they think it might reveal something that they don't want, maybe they don't want to know their heads in the sand, um, but also just kind of, oh, well, it's, it's my data, you can't have it. And we hide behind HIPAA oftentimes, but the reality is a lot more complicated and a lot more cultural in nature and less legal. Right. And, and sometimes I don't think HIPAA is a shield, but it's an excuse. And uh, you, you make an excellent point there. Um, one of the reasons I wrote this week's article, actually, was because I gained access, as everybody can, publicly to uh, the Nemesis by the numbers data that's just taking a, an aggregate look of what's been happening to us in the COVID era. And uh, obviously, some interesting issues are happening. We, we've, seen, we've seen the effect of lockdown. We've, we've asked, asked and maybe answered some of those key questions. And I know you've researched some of this, Counts, that, uh, you know, where did all the STEMIs go? Why is everybody turning up dead? I mean, some of the, these are some of the key questions that uh, we're drilling into. And uh, I, I found Nemesis on a very grand scale gave me some great, a great sort of start point with which to educate not only elected officials, as I've been doing, but also new entry classes to say, hey, when you seek your EPCR, this is where it ends up and what we can do with it. But on a sort of a narrower basis, obviously, you're looking uh, at some of these sort of COVID era conundrums, aren't you? What have you been looking at and what have you found? So we're looking at kind of two silos of COVID data that are interconnected. One is COVID positive patients seen in the EMS setting. So from a public health perspective, we really want to track those and just make sure we're identifying who had COVID when we talked to them and we cared for them. And that second pipeline is the more um, personnel kind of workforce management side, and that's the providers that are getting COVID. And so are they getting COVID from patients? Are they getting COVID from the firehouse or the ambulance? Or are they getting COVID from the community? And those paths sometimes cross, but both tracks of information are kind of critically important to, to understand. That's fantastic. And, and, and Mike, obviously you're working in biosurveillance and surveillance and data. And so, you know, what's what could we track or what can we track right now without having to, you know, again, we, some people don't have any information when they really do, but, you know, what are some of the things that you, you guys are looking at? Um, certainly looking at uh, the patterns of disease um, across areas and uh, kind of uh, geolocating and mapping them. So you, you can do that with, uh, with COVID, you can do it with the flu. Um, as you and I have discussed in the past, you can uh, uh, do that really well with opioid uh, related stuff um, and and trying to to use the the systems and patterns of data uh, to lead to interventions so for for example um, uh, there's a, a belief that if somebody overdoses in a restroom of a fast food place or on a park or a public place that they probably uh, overdosed using medications very close to where they purchased it uh, so when there's a cluster of overdoses that happen in restrooms and outside, and you can uh, geographically locate those and locate those in a, in a short time period, uh, chances are very good that the supply of the fentanyl that's causing the overdose is being distributed very close to where the overdoses are happening. Um, so it, uh, it allows 
you know, law enforcement to go in to help uh, cut off the source uh, while EMS and public health can get the message out to users in that area that there's a, a bad batch uh, that has come in that is causing people to overdose and uh, and potentially die. So it, uh, you can you can take information and turn it into meaningful action pretty quick if you've got access to it um, on a, a pretty real-time basis. And I know in NOLA, you had a, a in New Orleans, you had a favorite spot, right? Not you, but uh, they had a had a favorite hotspot as well, right? So in the New Orleans data, we looked at this, didn't publish it, but we saw a connection with gas stations. And those were common distribution points for um, illegal substances. Actually, and, and uh, for police one, not EMS one, I, I wrote up the article about the biosurveillance bio and, uh, again, using that hotspotting. And uh, luckily, we had a, 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 the, the first watch system, actually. We were connected with also our neighbouring county. And there were times where we could actually track the path of the drug up the, the highway corridor. And it was fascinating to be able to do that. And uh, I, in the article, I do I am the self-proclaimed drug czar of uh, Central Virginia, and I was at one point because of that information. Uh, but it's uh, it's all good stuff. And some of the conversation we're having now, by the way, we had or I listened to you guys having last week in your new Conversations That Matter uh, session, Mike, which I felt was pretty cool because you opened it up on Zoom and you allowed anybody in the room and you truly had conversations that matter. And so hopefully that's going to carry on, right? We're uh, we're intending to try to do those monthly if we can, and uh, you know it's super fun to have people like Counts in that in that meeting because it just raises the collective IQ of the entire group dramatically, and uh, um, was it's fun to have the voices in the room and and to start a conversation without a PowerPoint presentation and not necessarily knowing where it's going to head uh, until you kind of dive into it and kind of create your path as you go. Yep, I, I I didn't say anything, which is unusual for me at a webinar, but uh, I felt like I was having a fireside chat with you. So the format was fantastic. So congratulations on that. Public health obviously counts is is your background, and you sort of came up through the system. And I think uh, your your earliest experience was seeing an ambulance, and then the rest was history, as they say. But uh, one of the things that I did uh, certainly at Richmond was at every opportunity having a public health. Uh, MPH undergraduate intern working with me because I believe we have so much data. Is there room for more of you, firstly, and then can there be more of you? There should totally be more of me, <laughs> although maybe maybe an, a smidge less sassy. No, I think there is amazing room for kind of academic evaluation of EMS. It's this untapped vertical within healthcare, and it's exciting. I mean, I'm excited to be kind of this new generation of, of PhDs, um, many of whom are smarter than I am. But I really like the idea of most, most master's programs and even bachelor's programs, the students have to do some kind of capstone. And the interesting struggle students run into is they, they struggle to find usable data. They like, they're like, oh, well, what should I use? And everybody always turns to publicly available data sets. But the reality is EMS agencies can tap into your local school of whatever and say, hey, I have data. Do you have a student? And it's a, an amazing opportunity to create that cross-collaboration. And I think oftentimes people, like, I'm second-generation AMS, but not everybody knows what an ambulance is. And so this gives us an opportunity to open our doors to a wider swath of smart humans that could potentially contribute to our growth as an industry. 
I couldn't agree more. And uh, you know, some of the some of the things, the hypothesis that we considered was we we'd heard a rumor that our local Latino population were reluctant to call nine one one. And so, getting into the data, we worked out where using you know some 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 interesting uh, demographic data points where they weren't where they were calling from and actually we we then narrowed it down to the 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 local sort of community area for our latino population we're not utilizing uh, 911 and we worked out that because they equated 911 to ice and so we're reluctant to call that of course became then the the, the driver for the latino ems academy um, for greater uh, liaison with organizations such as lulac um, the league of uh, latin um, uh, associations and all of a sudden you know they are comfortable to, to to use it so it started with a public health intern it started with a hypothesis it went on to an investigation and it ended up with a very tangible result which was safer folk and so you know if you're listening out there and you have a local university that's offering an mph class or even not you know a little bit further out I think there's an opportunity here for us all to connect and get together. The old soldier in me is is a, is a proponent of what we used to call the intelligence cycle, and that's where you identify something you want to go and gain information on. You gather the information, you then collect it, collate it, assess it, and then act on it. And so that's that's the intelligence cycle. That's what 007 does for a living, right? And uh, we're kind of James Bondy in the way that we are working. But data, there's all kinds of data sources, but counts what's your what's your favorite data let's get into a favorite data discussion here oh my gosh it's like asking a parent to pick their favorite child which feels really unfair not a parent but like that's what I'm channeling. How about I give you my favorite data right now, which we're doing some really cool stuff with physiological data right now. Um, I feel like we've had, you know, we've been using defibrillators, kind of the same, same machine for a little while. And we occasionally tap into it in, you know, a static like measurement here, measurement there, measurement 20 minutes later. And that's how it gets analyzed. But the reality is, is we have continuous waveform data of the EKG, of the O2, of the entitled CO2. And in Seattle, I've got that for patients that we we innovate and then for patients that are in cardiac arrest. And so we're doing some really fun stuff of kind of looking at those trends over time, over the course of care for these patient cohorts. And I'm excited to see how that data evolves into flipping what we think we know about these physiological variables on its head. So... We've talked about data, Mike, but uh, uh, another thing that uh, you are a great friend of is planning, doing, studying, and acting. And obviously, a PDSA cycle is something that uh, is a small test of change. Um, so armed with the data that we have, how should we go about implementing a change? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And, you know, kind of framing it, as you've kind of alluded to, the, the beginning of the model for improvement is, is starting off with what are you trying to accomplish? And, um, you know, so often so many data projects in EMS um, don't have that question answered before they start. And they collect piles of things and produce reports and publish graphs and do tableau things, this and that and all this other kind of stuff without any good rationale or reason why. Um, and it's, it's, uh, it's frustrating to watch. Um, whereas if you say, you know, so what are you trying to accomplish or what is this in service of first, it helps you really narrow things down and focus on what it is you're trying to accomplish. And uh, NEMSCO has done a, a great job at helping us kind of dial this stuff in. 
Um, getting clear on what's your outcome data and what's your process data up front is huge. And then uh, collecting the data that really matters around the outcome that you're trying to produce so that as you do your uh, small cycle tests of change, they are in service of the bigger goal and objective that you're trying to do. So if you're trying to increase resuscitation from cardiac arrest, the specific data elements to look at, uh, looking at them um, in a way that allows you to see whether or not interventions you've made uh, actually produce a change in the outcome is that's, that's the nutshell essence of uh, quality improvement and using data for improvement science. Fantastic. As I said at the start of this, surround yourself with smart people always, and I've just achieved that today. Uh, thank you for that, Mike, and thank you for that, Counts. And clearly, first, we have information, you have information that you can assess, collect, collate, and turn into something actionable. Also, don't be afraid to do a small test to see if it's going to work before jumping in. So that's our view of data. Data is my favorite four-letter word, as I've consistently said. Uh, but, guys, how can we get in touch with you, Kats? Um, If you Google my name, I am Googleable. I have made it very easy. You can find me on any social media platform, and then I think my email is listed on my EMS1 author page. Excellent. We'll put that in the show notes. And uh, Mr. Tegman. And uh, thanks to Council's coaching, I am also on all the social media platforms now. And I'm uh, findable from that perspective. My email is mtaigman at firstwatch.net. And if people want my cell phone, it's 510-593-5730. Texting is best first. Okie doke. I'm sure we will do that. But uh, thank you both. I can be followed on Twitter at UKRobL or on LinkedIn. That's it. I've been Rob Lawrence, and my guests have been Dr. Catherine Counts, a.k.a. Counts, and Mike Tegman. Until next time, bye for now. <laughs>